Do you believe in ghosts, witches, the supernatural? When someone dies, what would make them want to return from beyond the veil of the afterlife to walk among the living? And what might compel such a restless spirit to torment the living? Does wickedness transcend death? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who believes in witches, but not the kind that fly on broomsticks, and generally doesn't believe in ghosts, especially not the kind that haunt innocent people for no reason. But I do believe that people are impressionable and really want to believe in things like ghosts and witches and ghost witches. So much so that some true weirdness can just manifest from that believing. This week, I'll tell you the tale of what has been called America's Greatest Ghost Story, a tale that includes ethnic cleansing, aggrieved neighbors, and a family whose manifest destiny seemed to have come with a really angry spirit. This is the story of the Bell Witch. The early 1800s was a notorious time of westward expansion for citizens of a very young United States. Despite the idea that European settlers came here for religious freedom, the not-so-unspoken rule was that, that in this new country, you could be free to practice whatever religion you wanted, as long as it was Christian-based. Once Andrew Jackson and his cohort had effectively run the indigenous people off their land, either through so-called treaties or just plain genocide, the white people came pouring in. In the words of author and journalist Martin Van Buren Ingram in his book An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch of Tennessee, The land of milk and honey had been discovered in Tennessee, then the far west, and the flow of emigration from North Carolina, Virginia, and other old states became steady and constant, rapidly settling up the country. They were the best blood of the land, men of brawn and brain. They came with the axe, the hoe, the plow, and sickle. They brought with them their customs and notions of civilization and Christianity, having the Bible and the American Constitution for their guide. Not to mention their diseases, sense of entitlement, and disregard for the people who had already been living on that land for generations. One such family to settle this newly discovered land was John and Lucy Bell and their nine children, who moved from North Carolina where they had amassed wealth and influence as a prominent farming family. In 1804, the Bells bought a 1,000 acres around Red River in Robertson County, Tennessee, built a house, and started farming. According to American Myths, Legends, and Tall Tales, an encyclopedia of American folklore, quote, Red River fostered a tight-knit farming and church-going community, and John Bell was one of its leaders. A champion of education, his homestead a place of rest for weary travelers in need of a roof for the night, end quote. By the mid-teens, John Bell had become one of the wealthiest and most influential men in the community. But in 1817, 13 years after moving to their new farm, the Bell family's good fortune would begin to change. 
The first sign that something was amiss was when Mr. Bell was walking through his cornfield and came across an animal he had never seen before. There's no description of the animal, but he apparently decided it must have been some kind of a dog, and he shot at it, naturally, at which point it ran off. A few days later, Drew Bell, one of the Bell children, saw what he took to be a wild turkey on the property fence. He went to get his gun, naturally, but as he approached, the bird flew off. The child was mystified, according to author Ingram, to discover it wasn't a turkey, but some, quote, unknown bird of extraordinary size, end quote. Now, look, I don't know how old this kid was, but he couldn't have been much more than a teenager, and far be it from me to question this kid's ornithological skills, but I'm willing to bet the bird wasn't unknown. Maybe it was to him, but honestly, it was probably just a bird. Shortly after the mysterious unknown bird that was probably just a vulture mystified young Drew Bell, his younger sister Betsy reported seeing, quote, a pretty little girl dressed in green swinging to a limb of a tall oak tree, end quote. This is admittedly much stranger than a large bird on a fence. It's not every day you see a little girl swinging like a monkey in your backyard, you know? These seemingly unconnected and unusual sightings didn't cause much of a stir in the Bell household. It wasn't until shortly after that another Bell child, Richard, would write in his personal diary. I remember it was on Sunday night, just after the family had retired. A noise commenced in our room like a rat gnawing vigorously on the bedpost. John and Drew got up to kill the rat, but the moment they were out of bed, the noise ceased. They examined the bedstead, but discovered no marks made by a rat. As soon as they returned to bed, the noise commenced again, and thus it continued until a late hour, uh, sometime after midnight, and we were all up a half dozen times or more, searching the room all over, every nook and corner for the rat, turning over everything, and could find nothing, not even a crevice by which a rat could possibly enter. The noise was, after all, accompanied by a scratching sound, like a dog clawing on the floor, and increased in force until it became evidently too strong for a rat, and occasionally a noise like the smacking of lips, then a gulping sound like someone choking, strangling, while the vicious gnawing at the bedpost continued. And there was no such thing as sleep to be thought of until the noise ceased, which was generally between one and Three o'clock in the morning. Fans of ghost stories know that phantom scratching is almost always the first sign of hauntings, followed shortly, of course, by the obligatory bed sheets being yanked off the bed. But before we get all cynical, it's important to remember that this was a good century and a half or more before famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren started going around helping people with their pig demons, poltergeists, and succubuses. Succubusi? Succubi. It's not like the Bells had a cheat sheet at their disposal of what to claim is happening in your fake haunted house. According to Richard's diary, occasionally they would hear sounds, quote, like heavy stones falling on the floor, then like trace chains dragging and chairs falling over, end quote. And then, of course, the entity, whatever it was, began to physically attack the family, as entities are frequently wont to do. I call to mind my first lively experience, something a boy is not likely to forget. 
We had become somewhat used to the mysterious noise and tried to dismiss it from mind, taking every opportunity for a nap. The family had all retired early, and I had just fallen into a sweet doze when I felt my hair beginning to twist, and then a sudden jerk which raised me. It felt like the top of my head had been taken off. Immediately, Joel yelled out in great fright, and next Elizabeth was screaming in her room, and ever after that something was continually pulling at her hair after she retired to bed. This transaction frightened us so badly that father and mother remained up nearly all night. After this, the main feature in the phenomenon was that of pulling the cover off the beds as fast as we could replace it. Also, continuing other demonstrations. But the entity wasn't satisfied with just harassing the children. Soon it struck a bigger target. Martin Van Buren Ingram wrote, Mr. Bell now felt a strange affliction coming on him, which he could not account for. It was stiffness of the tongue, which came suddenly, and for a time, when these spells were on, he could not eat. He described it as feeling like a small stick of wood crosswise in his mouth, pressing out both cheeks, and when he attempted to eat, it would push the victuals out of his mouth. Mr. Bell, being an elder in the church and such an upstanding citizen in the community, understandably told his family to keep quiet about the phantom troubles plaguing them. I can only imagine how this might look. I don't know what the Bell's farm produced, but I can imagine their customers might look elsewhere for whatever it was once they learned that the farm was possessed by an evil something. But after a year of enduring this abuse, the family finally reached out for help. Finally, the Bells couldn't take it anymore, and Mr. Bell reached out to a trusted friend, James Johnson, and his wife for help. Why these were the people he consulted, I don't know. Maybe James just seemed like the kind of guy who might know a thing or two about inexplicable shit. Maybe Mr. Bell had some hot goss about the Johnsons and was like, hey, if you tell anyone what I'm about to tell you, I'll spill about you and your wife. I don't know. But the Johnsons it was. And obviously, this kind of thing is really something that needs to be witnessed. You can't just be like, trust me, this is happening. So he invited them to spend the night to experience it for themselves. And experience it, they did. According to author Van Buren Ingram, when it was time for bed, the family and their guests engaged in the customary Jesus ritual with the praying and the singing and whatnot, with Mr. Bell praying that they be delivered from their torment, or, if that was too much to ask, that they at least discover the cause of it. After everyone went to bed, sure enough, as if on cue, the entity ran through its menu of harassments with the scratching and gnawing, lip-smacking and bed-cover pulling— At one point, Mr. Johnson turned on his light and said, In the name of the Lord, what or who are you? What do you want and why are you here? I imagine he sounded like Foghorn Leghorn. This silenced the entity briefly, but not for long. Soon it was back at its antics. By morning, Mr. Johnson had only decided one thing. Ingram wrote, Mr. Johnson said the phenomenon was beyond his comprehension. It was evidently preternatural or supernatural of an intelligent character. He arrived at this conclusion from the fact that it ceased action when spoken to and certainly understood language. 
Once everyone decided this thing was intelligent, they decided to try to communicate with it. First, they asked it questions that could be answered with a number, such as how many people were in the room, how many horses were in the barn, or how many miles away a particular place was. I guess they also figured this thing was familiar with local geography? It would answer by knocking or scratching out the correct number. And it was always correct. By now, word was beginning to spread about the goings-on over at the Bell Farm, mostly because Johnson was like, listen, man, this shit is above my pay grade. Maybe someone else will know what's going on. So the Bells opened up to more people about the mysterious goings-on inside their home. Richard Bell wrote in his journal, Visitors persisted in urging the witch to talk and tell what was wanted, and finally it commenced whistling when spoken to, in a low broken sound, as if trying to speak in a whistling voice, and in this way it progressed, developing until the whistling sound was changed to a weak, faltering whisper, uttering indistinct words. The voice, however, gradually gained strength in articulating, and soon the utterances became distinct in a low whisper, so as to be understood in the absence of any other noise. I do not remember the first intelligent utterance, which, however, was of no significance. But the voice soon developed sufficient strength to be distinctly heard by everyone in the room. Side note, how could the first known human words uttered by a fucking poltergeist be of no significance? Even if it was just, I take my coffee black, or excuse me, I farted, it seems to me the first thing a ghost speaks in your house is... Significant. Now that the thing could talk, the community wasted no time trying to figure out what or who it was and what it wanted. First, it said it was a disturbed spirit searching for a lost tooth, which is just like, what? You know me, I'm skeptical of, well, ghosts, full stop, but especially ghosts that are like, stay away from my stuff. So, A tooth? Like, you have the glory of the unknown in front of you, and you're worried about a fucking tooth? Get a life. Oh, wait, you had one. Okay, yeah, get another life. Next, the thing said that it was a spirit that returned to reveal the location of a buried treasure, but then, I guess, just, like, got distracted? It told one member of the community it was the spirit of a child buried in North Carolina. What they were doing in Tennessee, apparently, it didn't explain. And it told John Johnson that it was his stepmother's witch. Finally, as Ingram writes in his book, At last, a reverend manifested a very inquisitive desire to penetrate the greatest of all secrets and put the question very earnestly. The witch replied, It was nobody else and nothing but old Kate Batswitch, determined to torment old Jack Bell out of his life. Kate Bats was the Bell family's neighbor. Apparently, there had been some kind of dispute between the Bells and Kate in 1817, just before the Bells' troubles began. According to American myths, legends, and tall tales, quote, 
Even before the Bell Witch haunting began, Kate Batts had a fearsome reputation in Middle Tennessee. She was known to be sharp-tongued and assertive, frequently accusing others of cheating her in business transactions. She became the focal point of local suspicions and rumors. According to reports, objects were flying loose in her house, and she begged for spare pins from neighbors, which she was thought to have used for sticking in dolls to cast evil spells. Studiously religious, Kate could quote the Bible inside and out, and rumors circulated that she had been spotted in attendance at two sermons occurring at two different churches simultaneously. She was known as a vicious gossip, her mannerisms were described as vulgar, and her appearance was portly and portentous, end quote. This is a particularly harsh description, if you ask me, especially since in his journal, Richard Bell described Kate as, quote, kind-hearted and a good neighbor, end quote. Unfortunately, it's not surprising to hear an assertive woman being called a cheat and basically an ugly fat witch. Whatever the case, whether people believed the entity to be Kate's witch or not, they began referring to it as Kate. It's also a bit unclear as to whether anyone thought to actually ask Kate Bats if she had, I don't know, sent a witch to the bells to torment them. It doesn't seem like anyone did. They just assumed it was her witch and then were like, meh, what can you do? In September of 1820, Lucy Bell, the Bell matriarch, came down with a lung infection and Kate was despondent. She hung around Lucy's room, bemoaning her condition, saying, Luce, poor Luce, I'm so sorry you're sick. Don't you feel better, Luce? What can I do for you, Luce? Richard wrote in his diary that Kate would remain constantly in mother's room prattling all through the day, changing to a more joyful tone when she indicated any temporary relief. The persistent jabbering and disquietude was enough to craze a well person, but mother bore it all patiently, frequently replying to questions. Sometimes she would reply, oh Kate, I am too sick to talk to you. When anything was wanted or called for that was needed for mother's comfort, the witch would speak promptly, telling precisely where the article could be found. And so the strange voice continued from day to day, mystifying everyone who came to visit and minister to mother's wants. And it was utterly impossible to distinguish from whence it came, and yet so pathetic as to affect the sympathy of everyone who came within hearing. It was noticeable also that... Kate kept quiet when Mother was apparently at rest or sleeping. And as soon as she was aroused, Kate was heard inquiring, How do you feel this morning, Luce? Did you rest well through the night? Don't you want to hear a song, Luce? Mother was very fond of vocal music, in which Kate excelled, and it was her pleasure to reply, Yes, Kate, sing something sweet. Kate had a bevy of songs she sang for Lucy, but apparently the favorite was a hymn called Dialogue Between a Believer and His Soul. Richard wrote, No rhythmical sound or melody ever fell upon the ear with sweeter pathos, coming as it did like a volume of symphony from a bursting heart. I have seen the tears trickle down mother's fevered cheeks while friends would turn away to hide repressed weeping. Sick as she was, Mother never neglected to compliment the song. Thank you, Kate. That was so sweet and beautiful, it makes me feel better. Which the witch seemed to appreciate. 
What's so weird about this to me is why Lucy never bothered to ask Kate to stop tormenting her family. Like, clearly they had some kind of connection, right? How about instead of singing, you stop smacking my daughter and pulling her hair, lady? Like Ixnay on the old orchard tay? Anyway. Word had gotten out that the Bell family had a witch with a crush on the woman of the house, and soon, none other than Andrew Jackson himself came a-callin' to see if he and his men could get to the bottom of it. This fucking guy. Don't ask me why Andrew Jackson thought he was qualified to deal with a haunting. His resume mostly included owning, displacement, and murder of large numbers of people. As far as I know, ghost hunting was not on his list of special skills. But leave it to a powerful white dude to assume he can masterfully handle any old situation that presents itself. Gotta love that white colonial male confidence. Jackson and his band of murderers, I mean soldiers, encountered trouble on the Bell Farm right away when one of the wheels of their wagon got stuck in the mud. Jackson decided this sorcery was nothing more than proof that the witch was real. Jackson cried out, By the eternal, boys! That must be the Bell Witch! I mean, okay, or it's just, you know, mud in the south in rainy season. I guess these guys never saw my cousin Vinny. <laughs> now, see, down here, everybody gets stuck in the mud every now and then. Yep. Yeah, we're famous for our mud. Famous for your mud? How's your Chinese food? Then again, I guess he was right, because after a few minutes of struggling to get the wheel unstuck, the group heard a sharp, metallic-sounding voice say, All right, General, let the wagon move on. I will see you again tonight. The voice, of course, had no obvious source, and once again, Jackson cried out, By the eternal, boys! This is worse than fighting the British! Uh, come again, Bob? One ghostly encounter trumps an entire war? Coward. As Jackson and his men set up camp in the Bell's yard, one of the men bragged that the reason the witch let the wagon go was because she knew that he was a witch tamer. He pulled out his pistol and assured the men that nothing would happen to them because he had a silver bullet that would kill any evil spirit that it came in contact with, which is, I'm pretty sure, scientifically inaccurate. Everyone knows that silver bullets are for werewolves, not ghost witches. Well, Kate was not impressed with this dude's show of bravado and said, Now, Mr. Smarty, here I am. Shoot! But when he pulled the trigger, the gun failed to go off. Kate said, try again. He did, and again his gun failed. Kate then said, now it's my turn. Look out, you old coward, hypocrite fraud. I'll teach you a lesson. What followed was something that could have come from a Looney Tunes cartoon. Richard wrote in his diary... The next thing, a sound was heard like that of boxing with the open hand. Whack! Whack! And the oracle tumbled over like lightning and struck him. But he quickly recovered his feet and went capering around the room like a frightened steer, running over everyone in his way, yelling, Oh, my nose! My nose! The devil has got me! Oh, lordy! He's got me by the nose! Suddenly, as if by its own accord, the door flew open and the witch tamer dashed out and made a beeline for the lane at full speed, yelling at every jump. Everybody rushed out under the excitement, expecting the man would be killed, but as far as they could hear up the lane, he was still running and yelling, Oh, Lordy! 
Jackson, they say, dropped down on the ground and rolled over and over, laughing. By the eternal boys, I never saw so much fun in all my life. This beats fighting the British. <laughs> Presently, the witch was on hand and joined in the laugh. Lord Jesus, it exclaimed, how the old devil did run and beg. I'll bet he won't come here again with his old horse pistol to shoot me. I guess that's fun enough for tonight, General, and you can go to bed now. Jackson and his remaining men left the next day. By the eternal, he didn't get any satisfactory answers. By the fall of 1820, Mr. Bell's mysterious afflictions got worse and more frequent. His face and head would jerk involuntarily, his tongue would swell, and his expressions were distorted and unrecognizable. In October, he had an attack severe enough to leave him housebound for about a week, and Kate was not having that. Richard wrote, The witch also grew more angry and virulent in disposition. Every word uttered to old Jack was a blast of curses and heinous threats. The witch cursed and raved like a maniac for several days and ceased not from troubling him. Again, one wonders why Mrs. Bell wasn't like, knock that shit off, Kate. By December of that year, Mr. Bell had fallen into a stupor from which he couldn't be roused. When one of the Bell children went to get his medicine, they discovered a smoky-looking vial, one-third full with a dark liquid. No one in the house admitted to knowing what it was or how it got there. But Kate quickly fessed up, saying, It's useless for you to try to relieve old Jack. I have got him this time. He will never get up from that bed again. I put the vial there and gave old Jack a big dose out of it last night while he was asleep, which fixed him. When a doctor couldn't identify the contents of the vial, he decided to test it on the cat. According to Richard, the cat had a violent reaction to whatever it was and died almost instantly. They threw the vial onto the fire, which apparently lit up like in Harry Potter when they travel by flu powder. But it was too late. Whatever it was had done its damage, and poor John Bell died the next day. One might assume that with Mr. Bell gone, Kate would be satisfied. Now she was free to carry on her love affair with the widow Bell. But Kate was not sated and turned her full attention to daughter Betsy, whom she decided should not marry the man who was courting her. She would sigh and wring her proverbial ghost witch hands and plead, Please, Betsy, don't marry Joshua Gardner. At first, I thought this was maybe just a sneaky way for Betsy to break off an engagement she really wasn't into. Just claim a ghost is nagging you incessantly, but apparently everyone heard Kate begging Betsy to break it off, and so, on Easter Monday of 1821, Betsy reluctantly broke off her engagement to Joshua Garner. I have to say, Kate was really playing into the whole man-hating witch stereotype. This kind of thing gives real witches a bad name. Anyway, now with the man of the house dead and Betsy no longer betrothed, Kate was finally like, my work here is done, and she peaced out, but not before visiting one of the Bell children and warning him that she would be back in seven years. And true to her word, seven years later, she came back and started back up with the scratching and bedclothes pulling. 
With only three Bells still living in the house by then, Kate focused her attention on John Bell Jr. But this time, aside from the scratching and sheet pulling, Kate was more interested in having long philosophical conversations about the origins of life and civilization, which I have to admit is one of my passions, so I would have been thrilled to have a good sit-down with a ghost witch about it. Kate was of the belief that humans were in need of a major spiritual awakening. According to the website bellwitch.org, Kate apparently predicted the Civil War, the emancipation of enslaved black people, and World War II. After three weeks of chats, Kate was once again like, well, this has been great, but I'm a bounce. This time promising to be back in 107 years to visit John Bell's most direct descendant. That descendant, 107 years later, was his great-grandson, Dr. Charlie Bailey Bell. And, in fact, Dr. Bell published a book in 1934 entitled The Bell Witch of Tennessee, one year before Kate was scheduled to return, in which he recounted Kate's promise to return. But here's the thing. While Ingram wrote in his book an authenticated account of the famous Bell Witch, allegedly quoting from Richard Bell's personal diary that Kate did return seven years after John Sr. died, he makes no mention of any philosophical chats or prophecies. None whatsoever. In fact, while Dr. Bell went so far in his book to quote dialogue between John Jr. and Kate, Richard wrote that far from engaging in conversation, the three remaining family members in the Bell house specifically agreed not to talk to Kate. Add to that, there's no mention anywhere afterward of Kate actually coming back as promised in 1935. Dr. Bell lived another 10 years, but apparently didn't have much else to say about Kate after his one book about her. And now, I'm going to throw an even bigger wrench into the whole works. Ready? Aside from the personal diary of Richard Bell, whose passages were only ever made public in Martin Van Buren Ingram's book, there is zero evidence of any of this ever happening. More than that, there's no actual evidence that Richard Bell had a diary, or at least not one that revealed the tale of a ghost witch that tormented him and his family. According to a piece in Slate in 2006, quote, Ingram was a newspaper man who was on the hustle for a story all of his life. Repeated business setbacks, family problems, and poor health may have made him hungry for a hit. In 1896, the act of cashing in was not anachronistic, end quote. According to the blog Bell Witch Folklore Center, Ingram's book was apparently neither proofread nor fact-checked. And even though the title suggests the Bell Witch was famous, as far as anyone can tell, Ingram's book is the first account of her anywhere, ever. Famous? Try completely heretofore unknown. Ingram claimed to have based the book solely on Richard Bell's diary, which was inexplicably gifted to Ingram by Richard Bell's son. But there is zero evidence this diary ever existed, and really oddly, Richard would have been six years old when the hauntings began and supposedly didn't begin writing about them until more than 30 years later. So even if the diary existed, it would be a 30-year-old account of the memories of a child. Hardly an authenticated account, if you ask me. As for Andrew Jackson's encounter with the Bell Witch, it almost certainly didn't happen. Brian Dunning of the blog Skeptoid writes, 
Quote, Andrew Jackson's whereabouts between 1814 and 1820 are well documented, and there is no known record of his having visited Robertson County during those years. In all of his own writings and in all of his many biographies, there is not a single mention of this alleged Bell Witch adventure. The 1824 presidential election was notoriously malicious, and it seems hard to believe that his opponent would have overlooked the opportunity to drag him through the mud for having lost a fight to a witch. All known documentation shows Jackson elsewhere during the period in question, and all published material about his encounter with the Bell Witch relies on Martin Ingram's book as its sole source." End quote. According to historian David Britton, there are a couple of accounts of a young girl in the area hearing voices telling her to marry Joshua Gardner. However, these accounts came decades after the alleged events took place and were delivered second or third hand. It's possible Betsy Bell suffered from some form of schizophrenia and heard voices or claimed some divine source was telling her to marry this dude just so he would be compelled to marry her, and the story got stretched and pulled and cajoled way out of proportion by an opportunistic journalist looking for a hot story. Lord knows it wouldn't be the first or last time someone tried to capitalize on a nugget of truth by completely rewriting it. Regardless of the fact that it is probably almost 100% made up, the Tennessee Historical Society has leaned in to the legend and placed markers at the site of the old Bell Farm commemorating the site of the Bell Witch haunting. And apparently, the current owners offer tours of a local cave where it's said Kate would hang out, which is particularly remarkable when you consider that there is no mention of this cave in any of the original sources on the Bell Witch not in the alleged diary or in Ingram's book. Kate, the Bell Witch, has even inspired movies, including The Blair Witch Project and An American Haunting, as well as the novel The Bell Witch, An American Haunting. Whether the Bell Witch was a real entity who was a true scourge on the lives of an innocent family, or if it was the frightful and delusive invention of a desperate reporter, or the misconstrued stories of a mentally ill or just misguided girl, the tale's hold on the imagination is very real. The likely made-up story has been told and believed for over a hundred years, revealing a persistent desire among ordinary people to believe extraordinary things, and revealing a pervasive fear among ordinary people of what lies beyond life as we know it. Perhaps when we hear a story like that of the Bell family's troubles, we don't just wonder if something so unknowable and uncontrollable could come for us and thank our lucky stars no one is yanking our hair as we sleep, but we also wonder what will become of us when we die. Despite our stories of heaven and blessed afterworlds or reincarnation, I think we can't help but think about who among us might wander the earth after death. Maybe one of us, strangers, are the next Bell Witch, fixing our insubstantial existence on the living, afflicting them with our obsessive, twisted, inhuman needs and desires. I shudder to think. But then again, maybe the thing driving stories like the Bell Witch is the all-too-human need and desire for attention. Maybe our drive for attention and our hunger for acknowledgement follows us beyond the grave, or maybe some of us will sacrifice our ethical character for it while we're still alive. And if we don't get it, 
we will scare the pants off of people until they give us what we want. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, a wealthy socialite and aspiring author steps out onto the icy streets of New York City in 1910 for a day of errands and never comes home. There is no trace of her anywhere. All that is left of Dorothy Arnold are wild rumors and speculation. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek, and our voice actor for this episode was Luther Creek. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram. Instagram and Twitter, we are at SNUPod, and check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 